1: In order to be successful, to be at the level that you ended up achieving with all the accolades, do you have to be an asshole to to make it to the top on the track?
2: I don't think you gotta be an asshole to to win championships and and to get the performances needed on the track, but I can tell you what you do need to do is you, you have to be selfish.
1: Ricky Carmichael has one heck of a nickname. You want to know what it is? It's the GOAT. Standing for, you know, just casually greatest of all time. Arguably the best supercross and motocross rider in history. He won the motocross national championship seven times, AMA supercross championship five times, and now covers the action for NBC Sports and guess what we went next level with the great Ricky Carmichael hello everybody and welcome to this episode of next level I'm your host Andrew Curland, and I had a phenomenal day hanging out with Ricky Carmichael we met at the Atlanta Motor Speedway ahead of one of the supercross races and uh, I could tell from the moment Ricky Carmichael walked through that door he was ready to share some stories and boy did he deliver on some we talked about his career his legacy moving over to NASCAR but today well we'll talk about do you have to race like an asshole in order to be the greatest his answer might surprise you what does it feel like to be hated and how did the legendary Ricky Carmichael emerge as one of the greatest riders in history when the natural talent might not have been there well, he's going to have to outwork you. We learn about how he trained the brutal training sessions that went into one of the greatest riders in all of history. Give it a listen. It's a great conversation. Let's get into it. Ricky Carmichael.
2: Yeah. What's up? No, I'm, I'm here. How you We're doing? Good, I'm, I'm great. Atlanta Motor Speedway here and... Uh, Life is good, Yeah, no complaints. You just roll up to the track? That's right, just rolled up to the track. Uh, I live in Tallahassee, Florida, so we drove up this Uh morning, left there about nine, and uh, here we are, one o'clock. Get to sit down and talk with you for a while, and um, while I'm talking to you, um, after I'm done talking to you, I should say, we have our TV meetings. You got a busy schedule. It's, It's not bad, it's a good kind of busy. You think you're busier now? As a broadcaster than you were before as a, as a racer you know what that's a great question um i never thought that i was going to travel uh like i did when i was racing like there's when i retire from racing wait, right, there's no way that i'm traveling this much anymore there's just no way and here i am now i'm <laughs> doing like 17 rounds of supercross and we had the uh smx playoff rounds this year so that's an added three i'm doing three uh of the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship for uh, NBC. So I'm still traveling quite a bit. And you know what, my kids are uh, 16. They're kind of not on their own, but they're (laughs) self-sufficient. And yeah, I it, it, I have a really good balance. It's busy. Didn't think I would be this busy, but it's it's good. Keeps my my mind occupied.
1: How long you've been around a
2: racetrack? Seems like oh,
1: a long time. Yeah,
2: a long time. <laughs> so uh, five years old I started racing. Man, uh, yeah, five years old. Just just my my parents on Valentine's Day of all things, 1985. My dad took me down to a Yamaha dealership and got me a, a Yamaha Trizinger three wheeler. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that, that's what started it. Took me to a little local like sand pit, Tarpon Springs, Florida, and uh, rode there. And from that day on, I was hooked. One thing led to another, started racing locally, then regionally, then nationally. And man, I, I never would have thought that I would have made, made it to where I did. And I never thought that uh, from that day forward, it opened up a, a sea of opportunities.
1: Five years old, like, yeah. did you even know that's what you wanted to do? Was it more something that your parents were like, let's try this out, see if Ricky likes it. It
2: wasn't because I was playing like little league, like baseball was r- really my passion. That's <laughs> what I love to do. And so f- from when I started riding motorcycles until uh, I was about, that was fi- I was five years old. And then when I was seven years old, seven or eight, I was still playing baseball. And, and, and riding motorcycles, my mom and dad were like, hey, you know what, we can't continue to do both. We can only do, you, you need to pick one sport, baseball, motorcycles, and of course I picked motorcycles. So. Uh it was, um, it, it, I don't know how that I came, came up with that decision uh, because I still really did like baseball and still do. It's one of my favorite sports, uh, not to watch, but to play. But uh, that, that's kind of my story and how I got to the position to where I'm at uh, and how I made the decision to, to race motorcycles. It's
1: kind of like the all in on one or nothing on the other type yeah. of mentality
2: was that instilled in you at an early age? 100%, you're exactly right. So my parents, especially my mom, she was kind of the driving force. My dad really didn't say much, unless it, unless he really had to. But my mom was like, we're going to do it the right way or we're not going to do it at all so you nailed it uh yeah you nailed it right on the head is yeah, we, we're going to focus on one thing and do the best we can at, at one sport um looking back i i mean i'm super thankful for that and, and that being instilled in my mind like do it right or don't do it at all and you're going to focus all your attention on one thing I'm like with my kids I just I want them to do everything and whatever they like the best at some point then you can do that but you know like open their eyes up to every sport or whatever it might want to be whether you're in school certain subjects like you know take it all in because you never know what you might like or or you might gravitate towards but uh, yeah that that was what uh, my career was made on for sure is doing it right or don't do it at all you're gonna pick one thing
1: you talk about career you started riding at five i Mm -hmm. I see
2: that you got your first
1: contract
2: at eight yeah was it yeah what what
1: were the terms of it
2: yeah well i remember (laughs) i think uh, i got a couple pair of goggles for free scott Scott goggles uh maybe it was i might have been eight or nine and i got my first uh kawasaki team green contract which was uh three hundred dollars in parts that was my first kawasaki team green um, uh, contract. I think I was eight yeah, eight or nine years old and uh, that was it. Then then one thing led to another. Then the next year it was like, okay, you're going to get a thousand dollars in parts and a couple motorcycles. And then, you know, three, four years later, you're getting like eight to 10 motorcycles for free and unlimited parts and some some contingency, extra contingency. And uh, for people who don't know uh, the, what the Kawasaki Teen Green program is, it's basically the their feeder program—it's their amateur program. Mm-hmm. Kawasaki's amateur program—they call it the Team Green program. So they, yeah, they give uh, amateur support. They go to the, a lot of the am, major amateur races and nationals, and uh, they have uh, like a huge big rig now set up with uh, professional mechanics. They have parts that you can buy on site, um, and th- that was the. Main amateur program back in the day that most people wanted to ride for. So if you could get sponsored by Teen Green, you you have accomplished something.
1: If there's one thing I've learned, racing is not cheap at no. all.
2: <laughs> it's not.
1: How much did that help in in terms of being able to supply and 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 be able to finance your racing at a
2: young age? Well, that's that. You know what? I, I look back and. Um, this is one of the key things that I feel, I, I, I don't know how I got this, but I was able to learn at a very young age or see the sacrifice that my mm. parents were making for me. My, my, my dad was an electrician by trade. My mom had a, uh, a daycare business that she ran out of our house where she's watching like anywhere from three to five kids a day during the week. And then, uh, then she went on to be a substitute teacher. But uh, yeah, my parents didn't have a lot. I mean, my mom was would work the concession stands at local races and they'd waive my sign up fees. Sometimes uh, she'd do uh, uh, the scoring for the races and they'd waive my sign up fees. So uh, yeah, we didn't have much. And I'm gonna tell you from a very young age, yeah, I was like, man, I can I can see what my parents are, are sacrificing and it's almost as, uh, and I've said this a couple times is I almost, was racing for them because I didn't want to let them down. Um, did I enjoy winning? Of course I did. Uh, but I, I just remember like having that pressure of not letting them, not letting them down. And they never told me those words. You know, they were always just encouraging me to do the best that I can and giving me advice and what I needed to do and giving me every opportunity that they could afford to give me. But I, yeah, I had this ability to to see that. And really, that's what uh, was one of the driving forces and kept me motivated, certainly through my amateur career and up until I was able to sign my first professional contract.
1: Yeah, so did that switch racing for yourself when you went pro? When did that kind of change in your mind in terms of, you know what, I like doing this?
2: So I was probably uh, 10 or 11, I would say 10 to 12, when I was 10 to 12, Um, I remember, thinking like, man, I think I wanna be a professional racer. Mm -hmm. And I was doing well at the time um, in amateur racing, coming up the ranks, starting to win um, like all of the amateur nationals that I was going to. And yeah, that's where it kind of sank in and I could see more support that I was getting from sponsors. And um, at that point, yeah, I'm like, man, I, I wanna be a professional because before then, Before that age, say 10 to 12, I didn't know that I could be, and I don't even really think that I was thinking that I was going to be a pro. I was just taking it race by race. So I get to, to, you know, to like I said, the ages of 10 to 12, I'm like, man, I want to. If I could be a pro, that would be awesome. Um, And so each year came by, and you know, we kept doing better, kept doing better, staying completely focused on what we needed to do, and that was kind of the progression. Say, yeah, from when I was Ten to 12 i wanted to be a pro and that's where i feel like mentally it it helped me keep going as well where'd the
1: number four come from
2: great question so a lot of people always ask me where did the number four come from and my uncle uncle jimmy uh jim fenton was his is his name and um, he raced uh four wheels like he was a great great um late model racer in the state of florida Mm -hmm. and his number was four but he spelled it out back then. F O U R. And um, um, when I went to my first race ever at Dade City Raceway in uh, Dade City, Florida, we were signing up, and I didn't have a number on my motorcycle. And they're like, "Well, you need to you you need a number. What number do you want to be?" And they're like, "And I'm, and I told my my dad asked me, and I said, "Well, I want to be number four, like my uncle Jimmy," and that's how I got number four. So I raced with number four at my first race all the way up until i went to ponca city oklahoma that was the first major national that i went amateur national that i went to is in ponca city oklahoma is 1987. and they assigned numbers and they assigned me the number 167. so i raced with 167 all from from after probably two and a half years of my uh amateur career all the way through my amateur career and then you were assigned numbers as a professional so ninety-seven, I was number seventy. Uh, then, then I was winning championships at the pro level. So, was, uh, let's see here, I had number six along the way, nine along the way. Well, in two thousand, um, AMA went to a permanent numbering system. Mm. So, yeah, you had to have certain qualifications to be able to pick what number you wanted. And of course, uh, when that when that opportunity arose, uh, I'm like. I want number four and so that's the history there's so much history uh, behind that number with me and it was crazy I'll never forget when they went to the permanent numbering system you could still run that number as a champion Uh, so Mm. each year you know the the history of the sport if you won the championship you got to run number one the following season and that was special I was able to do that. And so once I kind of checked that off the box and I had an opportunity to have number four, that, that number meant more to me than being able to basically show off that I'm the defending champion. So uh, it's a long story about how i came up with number four and ha- wh- why it's so special to me but i think uh, the history of it is what makes it cool isn't it crazy how something as simple as a number means so much i mean i'm going to tell you it, it means so much to, uh, just a number you know you think about it like how'd you get that number well my uncle jimmy yeah. had it and he was a great race car driver in the state of florida and uh, racing late models a lot of success he was a wheel man and then to be able to go to my first race have number four and then you know someday have the opportunity to get that number again it was it was special
1: she so you mentioned you know you're you're going to that first race having to pick that number who traveled with you when you were growing up was it both your parents did they switch off mm-hmm. who would take you to the races
2: so when i was growing up as a kid it was really a family affair mm. Uh, my mom and dad went to all of my races. There were certain races, uh, depending upon the time of the year, uh, that, uh, well, actually I should say one race, it was the uh, Mini Olympics. It was the uh, Winter Mini Olympics, which was in Gainesville. It was a huge national. It was like the first national of the year, how the year falls. is always around Thanksgiving, and that was my birthday. Well, they raced, it was like a week-long race. And uh, my dad, because living in Florida, he would not be able to be there during the week, some of the weekdays. And, but it being a Florida race, he was able to come up at night, service the bike and all that fun stuff. So other than those races, my parents um, were at every single race of my amateur career, professional career, except one oh. as a professional. And it was um, the, the one that they missed was in, Um, Belgium, it was the Motocross of Nations, 2003. Zolder, Belgium is where we raced. You've quite the
1: memory for all the dates and details (laughs) and all that.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, especially that race, it was a special race, you know, it was like the Olympics for motocross. And uh, Motocross of Nations is, they have it every year. It's in a different country every year and they they take the three best guys from each country. Mm. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be picked for that race six times. Uh, raced it six times, won it three times, didn't win it three times, um, wasn't able, I actually I was picked seven times, but I wasn't able to race uh, one of the times I, I had a, a shoulder injury mm. a couple of weeks before leading up to that race, but um, it was always an honor. So that's why I remember that race <laughs> that they missed, because it was such an, an iconic race that they
0: weren't at. Mother's Day is around the corner.
1: Going back to you mentioned with that first contract, you got you know things like a pair of goggles, yeah. gear. I heard you didn't like wearing goggles. No young
2: <laughs> it's, <What> was, you, <laughs> you know it's funny like what's so ironic is that like one of the first sponsors I got was uh, Scott Goggles and I got like a couple pair of goggles <laughs> for free and some lenses. and uh, when I was a little kid, I hated wearing gloves. I hated wearing long sleeve jerseys. <laughs> and I hated wearing goggles. Like the essentials. Yes. <laughs> and the crazy thing is like, even even like to this day, I can get car sick really easy. If I don't like, if, if I'm not paying attention or there's like not a breeze in my face, yeah, I get motion sickness really bad. It's gotten worse the older I got. But I think that was an element to it when I was a little kid, like <laughs> five years old, like they're like, you know, my parents are giving me my helmet and you know like here you need to wear these goggles i'm like i can't wear the goggles they met I, I i don't feel comfortable with them on and i just go back to i needed to feel that breeze in my face isn't that crazy <gasps> that
1: is so fascinating <laughs> I, and then uh, part of that story i heard you mention. dad one race you guys came ill prepared he had to go get a bunch of gear from like yeah stands yeah is that, is
2: that true yeah we um, we were at one race and showed up and yeah like i, I, I don't know if the, there wasn't numbers on the number plate or something like that uh, and he, he had to like he, <laughs> yeah like he's running through the pit area trying to find numbers and going to like the local vendor there and oh yeah it was crazy you know my my parents they weren't involved in racing really like before i started racing so they didn't know anything about it so i think i think that was what the cool thing was about it was a learning process for them as well
1: so you said your parents weren't involved in racing before you started, but your mom was your coach. Yes. How? I've heard stories about
2: some of the training sessions. What was she like as a coach? Was she qualified? <laughs> uh, well, my mom, a lot of people always ask like, "How, you know, how did you learn so much? Your parents weren't into racing." And my my parents were students of the sport just mm. as much as I was. And so when we would go to local races early on you know they i'm I'm sure they were looking to to see what riders were doing compared to what i was doing you know i can remember like if when we would go to riding schools it would be learning lessons more i feel like it was it it was double-sided it was so they could learn and I could learn at the same time. So when we would go to these riding schools, they would be listening, taking notes or mental notes. And then, whenever we would go back home, and during the week, we would be working on what we had learned at the uh, at the at the riding schools. So we were we were students of it. Um, we were self-taught, and I think that that has some. I think that that's some reasoning of why I got to where I was because. No one told us what to do, we Mm. had to learn it ourselves, And I think at the end of the day, um, we were responsible for the decisions we were making and that helped us, certainly helped me later on in my career when I turned professional, is because yeah, I would lean on certain people for advice, but at the end of the day, I had the ability to to make my own decisions and and a lot of the times they were the right decisions because I learned to make those at a very young age.
1: I spoke with Jason Thomas, mm-hmm. your manager, JH, and they were talking about these training sessions and you kind of brought it up how you guys didn't know what to do, so you just went and studied and thought w- and did what you thought was best. Yeah. How intense were these training sessions? Because I've heard that even now, people would look at that and be like, oh my gosh, they yeah. did that?
2: Yeah. Along the way, uh, throughout my whole career, I, I think it's most known as the amount of volume of work that I did um, away from the racetrack and during the weeks in preparation. Um, if, if we were going to be racing 20-minute motos or 20-minute races, we were going to do double of that. So, we'd you know, we do 40-minute race simulations. and. Um, that, 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 my work regimen is, is what uh, I was most known for, what my mom was most known for. It's just, you know, how I wouldn't say tough on me, she held me accountable for all of my results and, and what I needed to do so uh yeah that's it was brutal but at the end of the day that's what it took for me i was a guy that required a lot of volume i could handle that workload and volume load not everyone i I, and 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 i don't know that i would suggest that to everyone Mm -hmm. you know to 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 give you an idea a guy like jet lawrence hunter lawrence ken roxon those guys are so precise on a motorcycle and Listen, we all have a certain amount of talent, but those guys, uh, I mean, they have so much skill to where it's a type of skill. They could get on a motorcycle and they could go through a rhythm section on a supercross track. And it, we could go through a rhythm section 10 times and they're going to be able to clean it eight times or I'd only be able to clean it five times. So for me to go through there 10 times and get it right eight times, I'm going to have to practice that. Um, yeah, do I have a talent? Of course I do, but they have more of a natural talent where I had a really good work ethic and I beat guys on work ethic um, more than I beat them on just getting on a motorcycle and having having raw talent and you know often people say you know, hey you know what are you most thankful for? And I think that having that hard work ethic I'm thankful for. Uh, I would trade that for. Natural talent any day of the week.
1: I, I was gonna say, like, where's the line between true natural talent and just working hard? Like, in terms of your career, what do you think got you further?
2: Yeah, uh, what what got me further in my career for sure is the work ethic. Yeah. because obviously I had a talent, a natural talent, but not to the talent, say in my day of a guy like Jeremy McGrath, James Stewart, or I was like Kevin Wyndham. The guy was like poetry in motion on a motorcycle. So in my day, in my generation, those were the guys that I would like, man, I wish I had their talent, but I didn't. So because I didn't, it forced me into a position where I had to do more to beat them. And instead of them guys do- doing 10 laps of practice, I needed to do 15 laps of practice mm-hmm. to, for it to equate to what their talent level is. And growing up like that, always having to do more and more and more, set me up uh, well later on into my professional career, because I look at it, when you get to the pinnacle of any career, I feel like everyone has enough talent to win. And at some point you're gonna get outworked. And that's where I think really it fell back, a lot of my success fell back on.
1: You mentioned you had to be held accountable. In what ways were you held accountable?
2: You know, coming up through my career, my mom was huge on holding me accountable. And even today, like when she's helping guys, she just, if you go out there and and you go do a 20 lap, uh, you know a 20 lap practice session on the track, taking your lap times, making you, making sure you're hitting certain marks throughout those 20 laps, not just basically mailing it in. Um, if 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 you make mistakes in a race, don't make the same mistake twice. Holding yourself accountable, make sure you're doing the work. You know, not not basically lying to yourself and uh, owing up to your mistakes. And uh, putting in the work, and really like being accountable and 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 being honest with yourself.
1: I heard, uh, you know, uh, your buddy Jason Thomas. Yeah.
2: He grew up riding with you. Yes. Were there any cheat days? <laughs> <laughs> um, coming up through. Uh, through through the am ranks and, and some professional days uh, when I was when I was practicing, I'm not sure if we had too many cheat days. Uh, if there was for only time we would get a little uh, get a little slack as if my parents couldn't go and I would have a friend come and and <laughs> do what we were supposed to be doing, that would probably be the only cheat. But if even even if my mom wasn't there i had enough self discipline yeah. you know and at the end of the day i feel like there's no magic answers if you don't have that self discipline it it i don't care who you have there taking your times telling you what to do you 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 have to be able to be willing to put in that work and have that self discipline when your babysitter, your coach, or whoever isn't right there with you,
1: Jason mentioned trips to Dairy Queen. Oh, you remember yeah. those? Yeah, I will say, <laughs>
2: going with my my uh, yeah. So my coming up through, and even today, I, I think my guilty pleasure is eating eating ice poorly cream. ice cream. I love <laughs> ice cream. I uh, don't like how it makes me feel the next day, but yeah, I mean, especially when I was younger. I mean, yeah, we would slip by the that. that uh, if there's one thing my parents weren't on me about is that was the diet. And and I look back, I wish they would have been on me with my diet because uh, later in life, to me, that is the hardest thing to have discipline on. And I don't know why that is, but it is for me, is uh, eat, eating clean. It just, yeah, I love eating bad food. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't, right? Yeah, right. Well, it, no, it, what's crazy is my dad... My dad, he just eats healthy naturally. Yeah. So he doesn't, he, he cheats once in a while and have some sweets, but naturally, if we go out to dinner, he picks the healthy option. You want the grilled wings or the fried wings? He, he takes grilled, you know, all the time. Where me, I'm like, nope, I want fried. Actually, can you give me double fries? You know, or <laughs> double fried and fries. So uh, I don't know why that is. I wish I would have gotten that uh, trait from him, but yeah. Uh, the, it, it, I'm glad that you asked that question because the hardest thing for me, the work was, it was hard physically, but to do it was was no problem. The diet was the hardest thing for me.
1: You know, back to the work and, uh, you know, your colleague, your competitor, Jeff Emming, said uh-huh. that you ruined the fun out of the sport. Yeah. Just by outworking everybody, it wasn't something that was very common back in the early 2000s, late 90s, do you feel like you changed the game in terms of how people train for Supercross and motocross?
2: A lot of people say that I ruined the sport uh, because of my work ethic and training, <laughs> and and I certainly will take credit to taking it to a new level uh, from a professionalism standpoint off the bike and everything was eat, sleep, breathe moto, and you know. When you're done practicing, you're recovering, getting ready for the next day so you could just go deep and hard uh, in your training, whether it was cardio, gym strength, it doesn't matter. Whatever it was, you're always recovering for that next day so you can just go hard in the training. So um, I did—I I definitely change it. I don't think I ruined the sport. It's been cool to see a lot of the, the racers, athletes today, take that same mentality and professionalism. Listen, man, we're getting paid a lot of money. To do what we do, and um, if you work hard and you win, you, there's, a, you know, there's a great reward at the end of the line. and that's championships, uh, the pride that you get from that, the satisfaction that you get from that. And um, you know I blame, you know my buddy Emig will blame me for ruining a sport, but I, I blame Jeremy McGrath because I had to take those measures to be mm. the king of supercross. Um, if I had not taken those measures, um, I don't know that uh, I don't know that he could have he could have been beaten. I think he could have won out until he was he he was tired of racing. And again, that's no slight to the guys that he was racing before my day, but no one was really able to beat him in a in a Supercross championship except except Jeff Emig in um, 1997. But uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I I had to buckle down and I really had to get tight and I had to win because I was in better shape because um, I knew he he had way more talent than I did.
1: Yeah, you had to take the sport to the next level. That's right. And you you dethroned the King of Supercross. You did that.
2: Oh man, that was tough. How was the
1: uh, fan reaction from that?
2: Yeah, the fan reaction... It's crazy. Um, The fan reaction was awesome when I was able to beat McGrath. Finally, finally do it. They absolutely loved me. So I was like a young, flashy, little redheaded kid coming up, 97, 98, I was doing cool things. Uh, 99, I struggled a little bit. 2000 got a little bit better. And then, uh, yeah, 2001, I finally was able to do the undoable and dethrone the king. Um, So after that Supercross season, i um i left kawasaki and went to honda and then i I think that was okay i think people i think some people probably thought that i sold out which wasn't the case at that level all the manufacturers are playing with the same amount of money so i could have gotten the same amount of money at kawasaki as i could have gotten at honda i beat mcgrath and then go through the outdoor season, I win that championship, switch over to Honda, and there was an exhibition race at uh, Las Vegas, at the MGM Grand called the US Open. And um, the Supercross promoters at the time for opening ceremonies, they had this <laughs> great idea about how they were gonna drop me down in like this um, king's chair and I'm wearing a <laughs> gown and cape and just basically poo-pooing McGrath in the Supercross. And from that point on, I mean, if they could have thrown rotten tomatoes at me, they probably would have. So it was rough, it was rough. I, I, I'd i say 2002, 2003 was really, really rough from a fan's perspective because, I think that they had this perception of, I was some cocky dude and yeah, I finally beat McGrath and oh, you sold out, you, you won this championship for Kawasaki and then you just went to the highest bidder with Honda and that really wasn't the case, but um, I couldn't, I, I mean, it didn't matter whatever I said, they, they weren't listening. Um, so it was rough, uh, but at the end of the day, I just felt like I knew that they were just being, being misguided and um, It eventually turned around. So um, in 2004, I didn't race Supercross. I had my ACL repaired. Mm And then uh, I came out in the outdoors. I was able to go 24 and 0 for a second time, which is really cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, But then I then I it's almost like reverse. I went from Kawasaki to Honda, which everyone knows back then, like Honda was the thing, right? I mean, you think of all the success that McGrath had there and like before his generation, I mean, they they were the ticket. And so then I, I, I left presumably what was the best the best team in the paddock and I went to uh, Factory Suzuki, which could have been considered the worst team in the paddock outside of KTM at the time, um, before they got everything turned around. And it was like, boom, the fans loved me then. Mm-hmm. So uh, after, yeah, after we got through 2004 and the, and the ship kind of turned around and it got back, uh, got back going what's it like being not liked to that level it sucks uh, not being liked yeah. at the top level especially when you didn't do anything wrong yeah. and I didn't want to come down in that uh, cape and gown um, uh, that, uh, that they had me coming down in at the US Open and I was, I was still pretty young at the time and I didn't stick up for myself. Mm-hmm. They're like, I told them like, no, I don't wanna do that, I don't wanna do that. It's, it's like too cocky, like, no, it'll be cool. You're the new guy, you beat the king. I'm like, I don't know. And like, nah, let's just do it. So they did it. And uh, anyhow, I can't, I can't turn back the clock, but it sucked because it was, you know, I just kept saying, I'm like, man, like what did I do wrong? You know, and so anyhow, it was was a tough pill to swallow just because, yeah, like I said, I I had done everything right that I had thought.
1: You know, you talk about like, I didn't do anything wrong. People reacted this way. And, you know, maybe imposter syndrome isn't necessarily the right phrase for it, but did you ever have insecurities during that time?
2: Certainly had some insecurities at that time, you know, just wondering, like, I, I mean, I was, yeah, I basically had become the bad guy. I couldn't do anything right, Uh, although I wasn't doing anything wrong on the track, just racing hard. I was the same guy that they loved. I'm coming up through as a youngster, uh, hot little kid coming up, you know, fun flashy guy to guy to ride throw it out all on the line and and that's what they loved about me I feel like that's what they used to say like man this guy just goes for it and that was my type of riding style and then all of a sudden just because I changed manufacturers and then I beat McGrath the same guy they were loving me Mm -hmm. and wanting me to beat the year before now I'm the villain and so yeah it was a uh, yeah, there were some insecure moments, for sure, and just times where I didn't i didn't even really like going to the races. I was just there to do my job, and outside of that, I didn't even really want to be there, just because, I mean, who wants to go somewhere when you're, the, like, the most hated man on the planet?
1: You know, in, in NASCAR, there's kind of that saying, when you put your helmet on, you become a different person. You almost have to race like an a-hole. Yeah. Did you feel like... In order to be successful to be at the level that you ended up achieving with all the accolades do you have to be an
2: to <laughs> to to make it to the top on the track i don't think you got to be an to 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 win championships and and to get the performances needed on the track but i can tell you what you do need to do is you you have to be selfish mm-hmm. you do it has to be all about you um, from a, you know, uh, the, the dynamic has changed so much today than what it used to be like in, in in my day where, you know, a lot of these multi-time champions, you talk about current day, Eli Tomac, two-time champ, Cooper Webb, two-time champ, they have kids, they're married, um, it was so much different back then. I didn't have my kids until my final season, and it was eat, sleep, breathe, supercross, motocross, and you know what? I have to do this today. No, we can't do this. Nope, we're going to this restaurant because I have to eat this. Hey, do you want to go over here on your weekend off? Nope, can't do that. Hey, let's go over here. Nope, not doing that. You just you have to be selfish. Back then, you had to be selfish to be dominant. And um, do I regret it? Of course not, because that's what you had to do. That's crazy. The
1: sacrifices that it takes yeah. to to be the best.
2: You know. You know the crazy thing. You, you know what's I try telling people this, like when I've mentored people, like when we had our, Carrie Hart and I had our race team, RCH, and what I think sometimes gets lost is the sacrifices. You have those small sacrifices that you don't think make a difference, Mm. make a difference at this level. And it could be something as easy as during the week, you're done going to, uh, you're done with your practice routine and you just wanna go out and play nine holes of golf. Like it doesn't seem like it would take away from what you needed to do the next day. Mentally, it might because you get out there on the you know get out get, get out there on the golf course. You're not thinking about things. You're just thinking about golf. But walking, swinging, and just the the physical exertion of it when you could be at home prepping, recovering for the next day, so you can get after it and have a very productive day. It's little stuff like that that at the elite level, those, those, are the, those are the gains that you're looking for. And sometimes people don't realize it until it's too
1: late. Man, you talk about discipline. You have to have the ultimate discipline there. And, and how it sounds exhausting just hearing about all those sacrifices. Was it exhausting being in that zone for so long?
2: It was, it was really exhausting mentally, mentally taxing being in that zone for so many years. I remember like after each season, as soon as that last race was done, physically I'm like, I felt the same the, the week after, the day after, but mentally I felt so good. And you didn't realize how mentally taxing it was just being on and, and being that disciplined until you didn't have to be that disciplined, you know, for, for however much downtime you were gonna take off after the season.
0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Well, there you heard part one of our conversation with Ricky Carmichael. And as I like to do on the podcast version of uh, Next Levels, I like to bring in people who were there on the ground. That's right. And Micah, Micah Caldwell, you uh, you appearance. helped us out big time with the production of uh, Next Level
0: with Ricky Carmichael. That's right. We had a, had a good time going down to Atlanta to, to meet Ricky and his group. It was it was awesome quite the setup and i'll never forget
1: we uh we got there the night before to set up you know we stayed pretty late into the night just to like get camera set up get the shots all how we liked it check audio and then an hour i think it was literally an hour before ricky was supposed to arrive we're like let's change Let's move locations completely.
0: Yeah, a lot of times when you're working <laughs> with some of these athletes or any any of these professional actors or actresses, uh, you you just given you know a spot a location and you just kind yeah. of have to go with it. And so for Ricky, uh, in particular, we showed up. It was dark. The mm-hmm. room. Yeah, that's right. Which had a bunch of windows. You know, um, it was dark outside, so we had to set up in darkness. And then of course the next day it's bright. Everything changed. Um and we had about an hour's time and hey, our, our D P James. We we found a better shot and I think we made the the right decision.
1: I remember James was sitting there thinking, he's like, I think we're gonna do this. Yeah. And there was that yeah. like two minutes where we're like, I think we're doing this. We're and doing then it. we're like, All right, we we better we're, hustle. We're doing it. And uh, I think the, the shot we ended up landing with was for the better. I mean, we got so much more light. We got to see the trophies in the background, a little a bit of, depth, of, the, of yeah. the racetrack in the background. So, I'm I'm happy with how that turned out. But what'd you think of just Ricky in general?
0: I think he he was a great interview. I think he really. I didn't expect him to. Uh What's the word I'm looking for? Like he realized some of the fans kind of jumped ship on him, mm-hmm. or he yeah, tur- he kind of flipped and turned into the, the villain, the heel, the bad, the bad guy. Yeah. And it, for to see that he realized that, uh, owned up to it, kept kept working, kept pushing, and I think that changed. Um, even from someone like me who never, you know, I grew up, of course I, he was the name I knew. Um, but I wasn't that into Supercross or anything like that, but I always knew of him and that changed my opinion on him already.
1: And, and this is one of the most interesting parts from, as you mentioned, this part, part one of the interview was like, I want to know what is it? feel to be hated by that many people and he he opened up and he even said yeah there are moments of insecurities and you know doubts that I should I have done what I did to piss all the fans off and I thought that openness was very interesting so um, yeah pretty good part one but part two I'm excited about because he talks about and without giving too much away his legacy and almost how he's not very impressed with it. Right. And his answer surprised me, and it was it was one of the more vulnerable moments he gave us in terms of true honesty, his true emotions and feelings behind something. I feel like we learned so much about Ricky Carmichael. So uh, everyone, tune in to next week's version of Next Level because it only gets better from here with Ricky Carmichael, Micah. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk a little next level.
0: That's right. Till the next one.
1: Till the next one. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo. Dirty Mo.